Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Matt Pavich. He's the Senior Director of Retail Innovation at Revionics, an Aptos company. But more specifically, he'll be joining us to discuss pricing strategies in today's retail climate. We'll talk about how dollar stores are dealing with pricing strategies. And it's interesting because some of the dollar stores that are working with Revionics have been able to keep their pricing down and not increase prices as much as others in the space. And we'll talk about why that is and how retailers are now leveraging data instead of maybe just using a cost plus model like they would in years past. So it's a fascinating interview, touches on a number of topics regarding pricing. In news, we'll touch on Ollie's Bargain Outlet and we'll look ahead to another new store format from northern U.S. giant Meyer. So, a quick reminder, you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. Also, if you enjoy the show, feel free to subscribe. As always, those subscriptions do help us out and they help us to provide the coverage that you enjoy on a week-in, week-out basis. So, let's jump right into it with Ollie's Bargain Outlet as they miss earnings this week. You know, looking at some of the bargain retail segments, Five Below also missed analyst expectations in their earnings call. They missed by about 4%. Ollie's missed by a bit larger margin. Expectations from analysts called for earnings of $0.33 per share. Instead, their reported earnings were $0.22 per share. So between Ollie's and Five Below, maybe not the best of weeks for bargain retailers, at least as far as as Wall Street expectations are concerned. That noted, things weren't all negative for Ollie's, but realistically, the issues cropped up on the margin front versus the sales front. Sales were actually up at the retailer like we've seen with others. You might have sales go up in part because of inflationary impacts, but margins have gone down. That's exactly what we saw during this past quarter for Ollie's. Overall, top-line sales were expected to be up going into the earnings call, There's a lot of new locations in the fold that have been introduced over the past year, and sales were up 8.8% year-over-year, now $452.5 million in the second quarter. Raw location count was up 9.8% year-over-year for Ollie's, so obviously that's going to be a major contributor to that top-line sales increase. Several of the openings, 11 in total, were in this past second quarter alone. And although most of the benefit was reaped from the addition of new locations, comps were also up slightly for the company. Ollie's posted comp increases of 1.2% for the second quarter. So comp sales were up, overall revenue was up, but it wasn't enough to keep pace with inflation. And therefore, we saw a little bit of deleveraging, maybe not on a per-store basis, but as far as the company itself is concerned, versus last year's bottom line. Indeed, their net income was where they struggled the most versus last year. As I mentioned, they posted both gap and adjusted net income, $0.22 per share in this year's second quarter. Last year's second quarter, those numbers were $0.52 per share. So a precipitous drop, something we're seeing from a lot of retail companies in this inflationary context with costs continuing to rise. But in addition to 
deleveraging of sales in comparison to inflation. CEO John Swigert on the call noted that the company elected to make significant price investments in the quarter. And this won over some customers, certainly based on Ollie's data, but it definitely came at the expense of margins. Impacting margin further was a change in the mix of merchandise purchased by consumers in the quarter and also offered by Ollie's in the quarter. Because of the increased sale of consumables, margins were eroded somewhat versus last year. And this is something that we talked about as regards Big Lots, another similar style retailer. To break it down, Ollie's felt like supply chain and supply chain cost increases caused about a third of their margin slip. And then merchandise margin from that combination of merchandise mix and also their price investments that they made to knowingly kind of erode margins on certain products they feel like are popular from a customer perspective caused the other two-thirds of that margin slip. And I think it's appropriate that we talk to Matt Pavich about these pricing issues today because certainly pricing is a major topic of conversation for retailers as they struggle to kind of maintain margins while also driving traffic from a customer base that is increasingly looking for value here in the later half of 2022. But leadership, Swigert especially, feels as though the margin hit at Ollie's will be short-lived. They actually said they feel as though this negative margin momentum that they saw in the second quarter, that's going to reverse as soon as this third quarter. And one of the reasons is because of deal flow. As with other off-pricers, we just talked about Grocery Outlet in this regard. They say their deal flow has unprecedented strength right now, but a lot of those deals just didn't consummate or get done until the end of the second quarter. And this is going to certainly help margins on a go-forward basis. They've seen significant closeout activity late in the second quarter, early in the third quarter, meaning that these purchases of merchandise from closeouts, that's going to put the merchandise in their pipeline to hit stores soon. Some of the products have already hit stores in the third quarter, and that's causing some reason for optimism among Ollie's leadership. Most of these products, Swigert said during the analyst Q&A when he was asked about it, these are going to be new SKUs. So this could potentially add to customer interest, but at the same time could also add time to product integration. So lead times to get the products integrated might be slightly larger than those pre-existing SKUs that they've got in their stores. Based on their internal data, they do think their value proposition will begin to push sales as well. They reiterated their commitment to price investments and basically said, hey, there's going to be a lag between making those price investments and customers taking note and revisiting those stores over and over again to drive that traffic. So they feel as though those price investments will be less corrosive to margins, in all likelihood at least, during the back half of the year especially as their deal flow improves and especially as cost of goods sold declines as a result of that positive deal flow. Labor costs do continue to increase for them across the board, though. The labor costs were mentioned as a main reason their gross margin took a hit, especially when it comes to supply chain along with those aforementioned price adjustments. Labor increased on the distribution side, as did transportation costs in the form of fuel. They do expect these costs and the supply chain cost in general to ease a little bit in the back half of the year, which is a positive. A lot of retailers starting that dialogue around what supply chain is going to look like during the all-important fourth quarter. 
And all these feels pretty good about not only the state of their supply chain, but also costs going into the supply chain. And they also feel pretty good about maybe fuel costs easing up slightly. Labor costs also increased at the store level in some markets, and this played a role in the increase of selling general and administrative expenses in real dollars. SGNA was up 7.6% in their second quarter versus last year. Still, their SGNA decreased as a percentage of net sales by 30 basis points year over year. This was due to leveraging their increased location count with headquarters staffing, so the more locations they had, really kind of scaling up to the staffing they already had in their corporate headquarters. And also the fact that most of their leases didn't see escalations hit during the past year. So you talk about sometimes leases will have escalations of 3 or 5% every few years. Well, in Ollie's case, the lease escalations weren't hitting as fast as those same-store sales increases. So on a per-store basis, you did see some leveraging of those comp increases. You just didn't see it as compared to inflation on a store-wide or organization-wide level. As such, even though comps may not have increased along with inflation, as we talked about, the comp increase they did see, that was enough to overcome store-level cost increases, and that helped keep their SG&A costs in line to an extent, at least compared to overall sales or as a percentage of sales. Still, the results for Ollie's were enough for them to decrease their overall outlook for the year. Comps are now expected to decline by 1.5 to 2.5% for the full year. Given their bullishness about the third quarter, wouldn't be surprised if this was sandbagging slightly. They do expect store openings to maybe tail off a little bit versus expectations. They're still forecast to be somewhat steady at 41 to 43 new stores for the year as a whole. 38 to 41 net new locations after a couple of relocations and one closure. So this would represent a year-over-year location increase of about 9%, and that's around what we've seen in aggregate from Ollie's over the last six to seven years. By the way, just as an aside, it bears noting that they're now in 29 states, quite a few more states than they were when they initially went public over a half decade ago. Real estate is becoming easier to come by as they continue to move westward for these spots that they want usually around 20 to 40,000 square feet. But the reason store openings are slowed a bit for them is due to various forms of delays post-COVID. We've talked about how COVID has affected supply chains, but it's really also affected things for growth-oriented retailers as well. I'll give you an example, a real-life example, at least from Ollie's. They have 50 new leases executed for 2022. So one would assume they would open closer to 50 stores, counting some of the leases that maybe weren't scheduled to go into effect until 2023, at least in terms of paying rents. But you would also expect some leases to fall from 2021 to 2022 if that were the case. But permitting delays and construction delays will push some of these openings to 2023. If you're not a retailer like Dollar General, if you're not opening thousands of stores at a time, if you don't work with specific contractors, on every single job. And it's just not reasonable to expect Ollie's to do that if you're opening about 50 new locations year over year. You're going to see permitting delays, especially in certain cities, certain municipalities. They don't have enough staff in their offices to approve permits, to sign over permits. And then these construction delays, these are things you're seeing throughout the country, even with retailers like Dollar General who have deals in place with certain contractors 
in certain parts of the country. So seeing a lot of delays here, and that's causing delays as far as Ollie's opening up these new stores that they're planning for. So again, leases in place, but everything as far as logistics is concerned, really difficult right now on the new store opening front. Still, for this third quarter, as I mentioned, they are bullish for the third quarter. They expect comps to go up 3.5 to 5.5% as a result of this deal flow, as a result of pricing investments, and also they're lapping a less effective quarter in terms of last year's third quarter. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about those openings and those delays they're experiencing a little bit further just from a real estate perspective. Ollie's is working to kind of mitigate those in the future because they are a growth-oriented retailer. And they know looking ahead, hey, we're going to open quite a few stores in 2023 and 2024 and 2025. So we've got to figure this out. And as a retailer, they can take two approaches, maybe accepting longer lead times and building in a longer rent-free period at the beginning of their leases or, or maybe change the tenant improvement dollars they're getting. Or they can actively work to push lead times down. And it actually appears as though they're taking the latter approach particularly as it pertains to construction work. They're being a little bit more forceful in terms of making sure build-outs in the locations they're taking over will be completed sooner. They're working with contractors that are promising lower lead times now, and they want to accelerate their new lease negotiations as well so as to maintain their historical growth cadence. So instead of maybe waiting on those new leases, they're trying to strike those deals early to make sure that they've got them for 6 to 12 months in advance. And construction lead times are important for them for other reasons too, specifically their store remodel program. They want to remodel 30 locations by the end of the year and reducing construction lead times, that's obviously going to be essential to minimizing sales disruptions during the course of the remodels. If you're a shopper in a store that's undergoing a remodel, and believe me, I know my neighborhood Target store has been undergoing a remodel for it seems like the last year or so, those remodels can be obviously very inconvenient for customers. And so reducing the construction lead times, reducing the amount of time these companies are on site and all the various subcontractors are on site, that's going to be beneficial for Ollie's going forward, which is one of the reasons why they're taking a more intensive management approach regarding their remodels and their new locations. And one of the interesting things they mentioned as regards their new real estate portfolio here or their new leases under effect they said there's, there's been issues with HVAC systems of some of their second-generation sites in which they're opening new locations. So upgrading the HVACs of maybe a former Toys R Us, let's say, that's been more difficult than ever with a shortage of technicians and a shortage of the units themselves. And in almost all of these cases with these second-generation sites, they've been wanting to upgrade the HVAC, wanting to upgrade the thermostat. And obviously, that's going to bring energy savings, efficiencies for all these down the road but right now it is causing delays and that's something that i personally have experienced at least in the commercial real estate world so something to note as far as not only ollie's is concerned but also other companies that might be taking over these second generation sites this may not impact a company like say five below as much as they move into a lot of newer builds maybe build to suit situations but for a company like ollie's which is moving into locations that have been vacated by prior retailers upgrading of systems has been an issue for them post covid and they're working to at least mitigate it somewhat not only for the cost sake but also so they can get these new stores opened 
a little bit sooner than anticipated. Well, that'll do it for our news segment. As I mentioned, coming up, we're going to talk pricing with Matt Pavich, the Senior Director of Retail Innovation at Rebionics. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of dovetailing with that first news story that we talked about. We're going to talk also about maybe reactions to overpurchasing for retailers, what he's seen during the back-to-school portion of the year, and also he'll talk about the future of pricing technology as it pertains to retail. Retailers are, as ever, constantly looking for new ways to leverage pricing to their benefit. Some, like RH as an example, are attempting to increase margins through selectively increasing prices. But elsewhere, in grocery and general merchandise specifically, retailers have had to get more creative to ensure that their pricing models don't force customers out the door, especially as cost of goods has risen over the past few years and customers become more selective with their pocketbook. Joining us to discuss current retail pricing strategies and how certain pricing mechanisms have benefited retailers in the current environment is Matt Pavich. He's the Senior Director of Retail Innovation at Revionics, an Aptos company. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm glad to be here, Trent. First, just for our audience's sake, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit about your background in retail and kind of what you do on the day-to-day. Yeah, thank you. So I've been in retail my whole life. Literally, my my parents owned a small C store growing up. So I've literally been in the trenches. But more recently, I have been at Revionics for over eight years, helping some of the best retailers in the world with their pricing strategies and making sure they have the right processes, people, technologies, and strategies in place to drive the best results for their customers and themselves. And then prior to Revionics, I worked at Target as a merchant and in several merchandising support roles where I helped with a lot of strategic initiatives, such as the launch of the Cartwheel app, which is now called Circle, and a lot of other areas to help the merchandising organization. So very happy to be talking with retailers about retail. It's a fascinating place to be right now. It is, absolutely. And I think most of our listener base probably familiar with Cartwheel now, as you mentioned, Circle. So I'm curious, just in terms of a history, maybe the last five years or so, what types of pricing strategies have we seen be used across the retail landscape? And what are some of the maybe more legacy pricing strategies across the varied retail categories that you see used over the last five years? Yeah, I would say over the past five years, we've seen a lot of evolution in retail pricing strategies. Looking at the breadth of retail, there are still a lot of very basic cost plus pricing strategies out there. Some companies are still literally saying, you know, product costs X, therefore I want to make Y margin. So I'm going to price at Z, right? Not super sophisticated. And, you know, we're moving away from that, particularly in the past couple of years, particularly. But it ranges all the way from there to highly advanced, analytics-driven, AI-informed, centralized pricing organizations where every decision is made with data, analytics, predictive capabilities to understand the impacts of those pricing decisions, to understand the balance of price increases and decreases to make sure that the right items are being priced appropriately for customers. So I think there's a wide range between those two from, you know, the most basic to the most sophisticated. A lot of retailers, you know, are just matching competitors pricing. A lot of retailers are using some level of optimization, but they're not using, you know, the most advanced solutions or they're only using on a percentage of their assortment. So I think it really varies and it varies across 
numerous areas. Some organizations, it's still just a merchant making a decision in Excel, and others have a really strategic relationship between the pricing organization and the merchandising organization. So I will say it's evolved, though. It's moving faster, more data-driven, and I think it's been an interesting five years to see just how rapidly retail is moving from the old way to the new way. You mentioned the cost plus pricing strategy, and I think that's something that's even familiar to those that are on the outside looking in in retail. I mean, there are stores, after all, named cost plus for that very reason. But what are some of the reasons we're seeing retailers move away from that type of pricing strategy? Is it just that now we have access to more data than ever before, or are there other mechanisms kind of making that move away from cost plus as a viable pricing strategy on a larger scale? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Cost plus obviously works from a margin perspective, right? If you pay X to to procure an item, you want to make sure you're making a profit. It's been in place since the ancient marketplaces of, you know, Egypt and Mesopotamia, right? I got this item for X, I need to sell it for Y or else I'm not really doing anything of value here. But I do say it hits its limitations in that it's not necessarily customer informed. It's not competitive informed. It treats all items to some degree the same, right? We know that certain items are more elastic and more important to be priced competitively on. And we also know that in today's increasingly dynamic competitive landscape, you can't just say, you know, I need to make X margin because frankly, consumers don't know what your margin is. They don't care what your margin is. They want to have a good value on a, on a purchase. They want to look at the products that you're offering, pay the right price for it, pay better price for it than they could get elsewhere. And that's what you really need to consider. And that's where bringing in the analytics, which are consumer informed and science driven and really understanding, you know, that this product, product A, you need to be priced very competitively on, but maybe product B, you can get that margin on. And maybe product A, you can get some margin in, you know, I don't know, Boston, but maybe you can't get margin in Toledo, right? So it's really important to understand the nuance of how consumers are different in different markets and on different items and really price appropriately so that you're creating a win-win where the customers get better pricing on the items most important to them. But then as a retailer, you're able to drive your business objectives elsewhere, maybe getting margin on those background items, or if you really want to drive share, you know, really amping up, you know, your pricing strategies to maximize share growth and revenue growth as well. So that's the reason why, you know, just using a basic, you know, calculation of 10% margin here, 15% margin there really won't cut it nowadays in a very sophisticated retail landscape. And you hit on something that I've found very interesting, especially over the last couple of years, is this idea of pricing being dynamic from market to market. You mentioned the Boston versus Toledo example, but the reality is you might be able to get a better margin on milk, say, in Kansas City versus Madison, Wisconsin. What are some of the different metrics? What are some of the different data points that retailers can look at as far as city versus city? especially in some of the goods that might be flying off the shelf a little bit more regularly, things like if you're talking grocery, milk, bread, and so forth? Yeah, really good question. So building a pricing zone structure, which of course has to include your omnichannel and channel strategies, which is a whole nother dimension to it, but just focusing on the brick and mortar side here, right? You know, there are so many elements you have to consider. One is that different people have different tastes in different regions, right? You know, Goya black beans have a lot different meaning in Miami than they would in Topeka, right? There are certain items that are just going to be more important, more of a key value item in a certain region than another. Certain items will be more elastic than others, of course. But going beyond that, there's also a competitive footprint, right? If you're a grocer and you're playing in Texas, you're playing against H-E-B and you need to understand what H-E-B is doing if you want to gain share 
and really understand what your you know shoppers are doing. But if you're in upstate New York, you're up against Wegmans, right? It's a completely different competitive structure. And of course, nationally, you're up against Walmart and against other players who are more national, like Aldi's of the world, et cetera. But on top of that, we also know that there are different macroeconomic situations in different areas. A good example, you know, if you just look at IRI's inflation tracker just today, you know, on perishables, they're up 21% in Texas, but only up 9% in Rhode Island, right? So to have the same exact pricing approach and same exact pricing response to inflation in a market that's 9% versus 21% for certain items is just not going to cut it, right? You have to understand where your competitors are. You have to understand what your customers want, what's most important to them. And I think those are the most important things. Obviously, there's a whole lot of other elements, legality, right? For things like alcohol, tobacco, you have different laws in different places. You also have you know, different supply chain costs, right? It costs more to get products to Alaska and Hawaii. If you're a multinational in Europe, you know, you have different, you know, currency things going on. But I would say at the end of the day, it should always be about the customer and always with an eye on your competitor. And you can't go wrong if you're really paying attention to your competitor, you're using data and analytics, and you're keeping an eye on your competitor and then you have a good strategy against them. Now, we've talked around it a little bit to this point, but I wanted to address, you've got a blog there on Revionics site, and one of your recent blog posts discusses centralized pricing. For those that don't deal in pricing on a regular basis, but might be listening to the show, interested in learning a little bit more about it, what is centralized pricing, and how can it assist retailers in really conveying that value to the customer? Because as you mentioned, it is all about the customer when it comes to pricing in most cases. Yeah. So again, starting with the customer, right? A customer sees a holistic strategy across the store. They don't see, they do see, right? But they don't necessarily say, oh, I shop at this place because their cheese is cheap, right? A price perception is a global thing, right? So are other elements in terms of how you're balancing your margin and your revenue, how you're balancing your competitive strategy against your top competitors, right? So if you think about traditional retail, traditional retail has a merchant, owning the pricing for their products, and they do it in a silo. And they're making the best decisions they can with the information they have, but they don't necessarily understand the impacts on the rest of the business, right? Let's say you have a strategy that says match Walmart on your most important items, right? If you have 80% of your merchants doing that, but then 20% are just not doing it for whatever reason, that hurts the price perception for not just 20%, it hurts the price perception for all of those merchants, On top of that, you just don't have the ability to really do those robust calculations at an aggregate level as a merchant to understand, you know, if I change the price on this, how is that impacting other items from an affinity or a cannibalization perspective? How is that impacting my company's overall objectives? If I go all in on margin, somebody else has to find that revenue or or offer that good price point to customers, right? So it really is valuable to have a centralized, strongly adhered to global strategy where you're looking at your business as a portfolio and making the right moves on the right items. Certain categories should be more margin focused. Certain categories should be more unit and revenue focused and more about competitive positioning. Same at the item level, same at the location level. You know, certain markets you have to be more competitive on. Maybe you have stores right next to your store versus other stores that are, you know, five miles away from the nearest competitor, right? So it's all about a holistic approach. It's the same in other realms outside of retail, right? You wouldn't have a very good Broadway show if every actor went out there and just did their own thing and they didn't have, you know, a choreographer telling them what to do. Same with a sports team, right? 
it's good to have an offensive coordinator. You don't just tell everyone to run out on the field and do what they think is best on the next snap, right? It's good to have a clear strategy in place where everyone knows their roles and they're doing the fundamentals to achieve that strategic objective and that it's adhered to and it's executed flawlessly and it's using data to inform it. And that's what can really be a big difference maker, particularly in a time full of disruption with inflation, with supply chain challenges, inventory issues, all sorts of things that are going on, right? It's very critical to have a strategy and not a collection of tactics that don't add up to anything. Well, and let's jump right into it because you mentioned a number of current topics, a lot of current events. A lot of attention has been focused on this current inflationary environment and particularly how dollar stores are handling it. And to this point, we've talked about you know, maybe being able to adjust prices. But we know, for example, a store like Dollar Tree moving to $1.25, but a lot of their prices are the same across the board. Same thing with Dollar General trying to keep flat price points there. What are we seeing in the dollar store space or maybe among value retailers as far as how they're handling pricing in the current environment? Yeah, I think the dollar channel has done a really good job of responding to inflationary environment that has occurred. So first of all, we're really proud to be working with the largest dollar channel retailers. They are currently working with Revionics and, you know, we've worked together to really help respond to these challenges such as inflation. But I think really there's a few things going on. One, at a macroeconomic level, I think a lot of people are shifting into lower price retailers as the result of prices going up, their budgets are getting more constrained. So just naturally, that channel is going to do well in terms of there are going to be customers who say, look, I really like to buy things at these other grocers or these certain places, but you know, now I'm more constrained. So now I, I'm going to consider buying that same item you know, in the dollar channel. But I think the dollar channel specifically, at least the retailers we've worked with, have done a fantastic job of looking at the analytics, understanding you know, where they can take prices up, where they can take prices down, where they can hold the line. And again, it comes back to, you know, listening to your customers and listening to the data and understanding really, you know, where you can make a difference with pricing and not take your prices up too high. I think, you know, a lot of news happened when, you know, they started going above a dollar threshold at some dollar retailers. But, you know, that's a natural evolution of things. My grandfather shopped at the five and dime where everything was a nickel or a dime, right? You know, inflation's a natural thing. It's occurred over time. You know, the value of a dollar is a lot different today than it was in, you know, 1950, 1900, right? So I think, you know, they need to evolve accordingly. And as long as they're trusting the data and they're making the right decisions on the right items, I think that they are doing a really good job of capturing share and really saying, hey, you know, we offer some decent products here at a really, really good price at a time when prices are going up. You should consider shopping and buying some products here. I also think brand loyalty is at an all-time low, and that is definitely helping that as well, where, you know, people are looking around, they're trying to figure out where can they get the most bang for their buck. And the Dollar Channel's done a good job of raising their hand and saying, hey, I'm here, look at me, I understand you, I'm following the data, I know which items are important to you, and I'm giving you a really fantastic price on that item, and I hope you consider us. You mentioned the five and dime comparison. I can't help but note reading some newspaper articles from when Woolworths went away from that in the early 1900s. People thought the world was ending kind of the same thing a few months ago with Dollar Tree. But you, you mentioned brand loyalty being at an all-time low. People are more price conscious than ever. And that brings us into very current events in terms of back-to-school shopping. 
Regarding what we've seen over the last couple of months, what are some of the dynamics retailers have used specifically as far as back to school shopping to ensure that they're snagging those customers, bringing them in, maybe bringing them in from other brands or other retailers? Yeah, so I think back to school is a great event for retailers just as, you know, inflation is starting to hit that interesting point where it was going up and then, you know, it's started to slow down a little bit here. But I think back to school is interesting because there's a lot of inherent things going on where, for instance, inflation, yes, it's been high, but if you actually look at the statistics for that categories most shopped for back to school, those items haven't gone up as much. So a good example being, you know, boys apparel is only up 4.8% year over year compared to, you know, a much higher number for the nation. Girls apparel is up even less. And both of those categories have gone down since the previous month, right? Same with some electronics. So I think there's this unique balance where, you know, people are squeezed by inflation, but these categories haven't gone up necessarily as much. At the same time, you're running into some of the largest retailers like Target and Walmart have overpurchased inventory and trying to clear out that inventory and offering some really, really good deals. So that's also bringing down some pricing. So I think this year for back to school, you have a lot of things happening. You have people going back to school in person for the first time in a lot of districts in two years. You have you know an inflationary background where prices are actually pretty competitive and pretty good. You have this brand loyalty change where people are willing to shop different places and they're exploring prices online. And so what it really comes down to is the retailers who are going to win this back to school season are using the best promo analytics to offer the best discounts on their products based on what they're seeing with their customers and to make sure that they're balancing those prices very well. Because, you know, even though it's an inflationary environment, it's again, these are categories that haven't seen that large of prices going up. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that, you know, back to school is not like Christmas where it's one day, it's the same day for everyone. Well, not exactly the same day for everyone, depending on different versions of Christianity, but but it basically is in the U.S., right? Whereas back to school is a rolling event, right? You have school season start at different times of the year in different areas. You have tax holidays in different areas where you can have a weekend with a massive sales spike, right? So these are the things that the best retailers are really paying attention to, to say, okay, how can we win this back to school tax holiday in this market? And how can we have a similar strategy in this market? And they're really using the analytics to inform their decision. And they're really using the right promo strategies to offer the right discount so that they can gain some of that share and remain a very good price option for the shoppers who are, their budgets are constrained. And one thing we know is families will still spend that money for back to school. Even if they're squeezed, they will make sure that their kids have what they need to go to school. They might sacrifice going from brand A to brand B, which is another thing, huge private label opportunity, but they're going to make sure that their kids have what they need to go to school. So the retailers have to understand that that market is there. It's just, they have to capture it and they have to do everything right at the local level. They have to do everything right at the discount level and they have to offer the right assortment and really offer those private label opportunities and and other areas where they can possibly gain some share. You mentioned another current event phenomenon that I wanted to touch on just briefly as kind of a follow-up. In terms of back-to-school, you mentioned over-purchasing and some retailers reacting to that, maybe discounting prices in certain areas. But I know a concern for some retailers is just kind of that self-cannibalization effect. They don't want to drive prices down too low to move that merchandise. 
What are we seeing surrounding retailers trying to move some of those products that were maybe overpurchased or collected during the course of the last couple of years as we saw these other supply chain woes? Yeah. So for one, it's an understandable predicament given the supply chain shortages we were all talking about not too long ago to say, hey, we don't want to be in that situation again. Empty shelves are not good. It's not what we want to be known for. And oddly enough, we're still seeing empty shelves in some retailers and we're seeing an overabundance of inventory in others. So it's kind of in a very lumpy state right now. But having said that, a lot of that comes down to having the right analytics and understanding what the actual demand in the market is and purchasing to prevent that situation from happening in advance. So one of the things that you know we're really proud of is a lot of the retailer partners that we work with here at Revionics, they haven't run into that situation where they have way too much inventory or not enough inventory because they had the analytics and the pricing levers that they could pull to shift demand as needed based on inventory levels where they haven't run into that challenge. Now, having said that, when you have run into a challenge, you still need to deal with it, right? So the best way to prevent it is, again, to not have the problem in the first place. But if you have that problem, then it really comes down to understanding, you know, what's the optimal way to clear out this inventory And I would say the classic mistake a lot of retailers make, and we see this time and time again, is that they wait too long when the demand has stopped, and then they're stuck clearing it out at a fire sale. And you've seen some of the profitability hits that some of the largest retailers in this country have reported as a result of it, right? And I would say using, it's actually interesting, but markdown optimization doesn't get talked about as much as promo optimization or your everyday price optimization, but it's driven really strong results for the retailers who use it to make sure that they're getting the maximum capture rate and sell through. It prevents them from running into situations when, you know, it's a little too late and now you're you're basically giving things away and your margin is bleeding. So we've seen some good success with the retailers who have the right processes in place from a markdown perspective. And you're right. We certainly don't hear a whole lot about markdown optimization when it comes to pricing strategies. Before we ask about the future of pricing technology and what's on the horizon, I did want to ask a question regarding the inherent cost kind of of changing prices at a retailer. You know, it was said five, six, seven years ago that maybe digital shelf tags would be everywhere. And you do see it in certain segments, but still, when it comes to changing prices, especially in the middle of a store for, say, a grocer, you're still talking about shelf tags. You still have to have labor in terms of someone pulling that shelf tag off. How do retailers or how do the analytics kind of account for maybe that cost of changing prices, so to speak? in terms of those analytics, making sure that the prices are only changed when it makes the most sense? No, really good question. And there is obviously a shift toward more dynamic pricing, more technology enhanced pricing, whether it's, you know, just your mix moving more to omni-channel and away from brick and mortar or, you know, ESLs. And there are capabilities now. We have customers in Europe who have ESLs and are changing prices several times per day because they don't have to worry about the labor tied to that. But the fact remains that there are still several retail segments where there will always be people changing the signs. And we know that this is going to happen for a while. So the technology needs to account for this. And there's a few ways that it does it. So I'd say, first of all, it's important to understand which pricing actions will drive the most value for your organization. So in a world where average employee is being paid more than they were three years ago, and a lot of people are still experiencing labor shortages, you have to really prioritize the pricing actions you make. 
So you need to have the predictive analytics to say, if I take these 50 price changes or these 100 price changes or these 200 price changes, what's the diminishing return between the 50 most important versus if I did all 200 or all 3,000, et cetera? So having the technology and the forecasting and the, the capabilities and the AI to help you with that is really important. On top of that, we know that a lot of energy goes into ineffective promotions. We've worked with numerous retailers. We've looked at their promos. And, you know, one of the things that's pretty consistent is that retailers still are running a lot of ineffective promotions. They might drive additional revenue, but they might be cannibalizing other brands. They might be actually a profit loss. It might be a poor allocation of vendor funds where, yeah, you technically did pull the profit, but if you had poured that vendor fund into something else, you would have pulled a better profit and better revenue, right? So just by eliminating ineffective promotions or perhaps lowering the amount of labor tied to them, you know, if you you go from 25% 25% off to maybe 15% off, you could get equal results with less you know, restocking of an end cap, right? There's a lot of things you can do on that front as well to make sure that you're optimizing your labor and getting the most results for your capabilities. So I think there's a lot that analytics can do to help inform what are the most important price changes to help calculate what are the most important price changes to help you really prioritize it and to really help you stop doing inefficient tasks. Some really great points there regarding labor in store. And we'll close out with this. Looking from the perspective of someone that does this and is involved in pricing, not only technology, but also analytics on a day-to-day basis, what are some things that we're going to see over the next few years, maybe advancements in pricing? And what are some ways in which you think people will maybe change the way they think about pricing over the next few years? Really good question. I think pricing is going to get faster and more dynamic. And again, it it will vary by segment, right? Certain products, you're not going to change the price on on a frequent basis, right? But I will say the one thing that we've seen, and it's accelerating more and more, is people are using more data, more analytics. They're pricing faster. They're doing more consumer-informed pricing using more sophisticated AI, And your competitors, if you're a retailer, your competitors are doing that, right? So a good example, right? If you are a retailer who is shopping competitive pricing, you know, every quarter, and then you match them, that's not going to cut it a couple of years from now, five years from now. If you're shopping your competitor weekly and then reacting to those prices, that's not going to cut it, right? It's it's going to move to daily or it's already daily and you're behind the curve or it could move to intraday, right? So I think the speed by which you understand what's happening in the market is going to become even more and more critical. And having the most advanced capabilities to not just process what's happening in the market, but then take all that information and find the best way to react to that, to drive the right prices across different channels, different markets, different products, um, to meet your strategic goals, whether it's gaining share, whether it's, you know, balancing share growth with profit growth, whether it's, hey, win this key market versus key competitor, right? The ability to do that is going to become faster and more amplified. And the technology is going to become even more sophisticated to help you along that path. So I would say that that's going to be a major trend on the retail side and, and what you need to do to be successful. As a consumer, this is going to benefit you because what this means is is that when you're making purchases, you're adding to that pool of data that is determining which items are most important to be competitive on versus which ones are more important to be margin. You're contributing to, hey, should I have better prices in Santa Monica versus Austin, right? 
Like these are the things that as a consumer, it's going to become more transparent. You're going to have more ability to compare. You're going to have more ability to understand, you know, I'm getting better value from this retailer than this retailer. And I think that that's going to be a net good for, you know, consumers as more AI and dynamic pricing is adopted because they're going to have more options to buy things at a better price. Well, as with so many things in retail, it seems that things are getting faster, but it's still all about the customer. Well, once again, Matt, we thank you so much for joining us. We could talk about this all day, but I don't want to monopolize your time, but I appreciate the time you've given us today. Thank you very much, Trent. It was great to be on the show. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We enjoyed having Matt on the show, and you can tell, of course, just from hearing him talk and listening to him talk, how enthusiastic he is about pricing and pricing dynamics and so it's always great to talk about those things with someone that's enthusiastic about it and certainly we look forward to having matt on the show in the future now in our looking ahead segment i wanted to look towards chain store meyer we've talked in the past in our looking ahead segment and in other segments about meyer's smaller square footage footprints they've put in some bespoke type concepts in the Detroit metro area, in the Grand Rapids metro area. And these stores oftentimes 20 to 30,000 square feet. In fact, we put on our Instagram account some time ago, earlier this year, their Bridge Street market concept in Western Grand Rapids. Again, a lot of Meyer private labels in these locations, but a different concept than the typical Meyer store overall. Smaller square footage, more grocerant play back and forth there, and a more upscale vibe, if you will, not as much clothing and so forth. Well, they've now released designs for two Meyer grocery stores, and that's the name of the new concept, Meyer Grocery, in Southeast Michigan in 2023. One of these is in Orion Township near the Detroit metro area. These stores will be smaller than the typical Meyer stores, but much larger than some of these market store concepts that they've unveiled recently. These stores are going to be from 75,000 to 90,000 square feet. They're going to omit the clothing. You're still going to have grocery. You're still going to have in-store bakeries and delis. They'll include pharmacy, HBA, baby, pets, consumables, card and party and floral, but maybe not as much in home furnishings, maybe not as much in clothing, certainly in these particular stores. And one of the reasons they want to do this is because it gives them the opportunity to maybe open up in more neighborhoods. So we talk a little bit about Ollie's in the first segment, you know, jumping into these second generation locations. Meyer has done a little bit of that in former Super Kmart stores in particular in the upper Midwest. But one thing to note is Meyer, the grand majority of the time, they like to own their own real estate. And when you look at owning your own real estate for a store that might be In the six figures, as far as square footage is concerned, those properties can be expensive. They can be tough to come by, especially in urban areas. So they feel as though this smaller store footprint is going to enable them to maybe open more stores in their wheelhouse area versus undertaking the amount of CapEx it would take to open a larger format Meyer store. 
So ultimately, you're looking at a Meyer store that's basically just going back to grocery. It'll be like a larger format Kroger store, maybe not a Kroger marketplace store, but a larger format Kroger store nonetheless. So 75 to 90,000 square feet, that's a pretty large store for a grocery store. One interesting thing regarding their store design for these locations is that they'll look at having an L-shaped store design or the stores will be basically boxes, but instead of the typical Meyer store format where you have two entrances, one on each side of the lengthy building, kind of like a Walmart Supercenter if you're unfamiliar with the Meyer chain, these stores are going to have one centralized entrance, but they'll be in the corner of the store, similar to what you see from an Aldi or other smaller grocery stores. And this is designed to maximize the number of parking spaces that are within a close proximity to those front entrances. So everything here really built around convenience for the consumer. And these are designed to be in, you would think, suburban areas going forward. So Meyer already operates 262 stores between super centers and some of their smaller format they already have a few smaller format grocery stores throughout their portfolio some of their older legacy locations don't deal as much in clothes and hardware and home furnishings but i do want to see just how meyer will use this new concept to expand when we initially talked about many years ago their grand rapids store and again this opened back in 2018 that bridge street market store that we discussed we talked to a representative from M Live, the newspaper that was covering that story, and they said, hey, we think that this is probably going to be a one-off. It's a special thing that Meyer is doing for this particular market. Well, as it turned out, Meyer liked that store concept so much that they unveiled more of those, and each one kind of has their own different feel, their own square footage design, and so forth. But with these Meyer grocery stores, it really seems as though Meyer is trying to lay down a format that they can replicate easily going forward and we've talked about on the show before they own real estate in some markets that they're not in to this point again they own real estate and they've owned real estate for many years in the st louis metro area even though they don't have stores there so will they find this new store format amenable to them such that they can expand to maybe some of these markets they've owned land in or even some markets outside of their current metro areas so in suburban type areas maybe built around convenience for the customer. So I'm really anxious to see what Meyer does with this grocery concept. Look, they do a ton of research. I've known people from their front office now for several years. They not only do a lot of research, but when they unveil one of these concepts to the public, they're an immensely private company, not only privately owned, but very private about their goings on in their front office. When they unveil a concept like this, they usually have plans to expand it further. So I want to see just how far they expand it. And then also looking forward to visiting one of these stores when they open in early 2023 to see just how the layout differs from a traditional Meyer store. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the Retail Focus podcast. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Rosemary Coates, who will talk about counterfeits and how retailers are combating them, both combating counterfeits getting into their own supply chains and counterfeits popping up on the web that might be deteriorating their own market share. It's a very interesting dynamic counterfeiting is, and so Rosemary will help to shine some light on retailers' relationship with counterfeits next week. Once again, we thank Matt Pavich for joining us on this week's episode. We hope everyone had a nice long weekend, and we look forward to being back with you approximately seven days from now. 
the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.